Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Vista. It's wonderful to see you here today. If we haven't met, my name's Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time, or just the first time in a long time, whatever the case may be, uh, we're so glad that you join us. We hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted, that you make yourself at home here at the Vista. Now, today we are in the, uh, the penultimate week of our three-month-long journey through the wild, weird, but ultimately very joyful book known as Revelation. Sarah Hammond is going to be wrapping up the series next week. Sarah does an awesome job. You want to make sure that you check it out. And then, as I mentioned last week, I, I got us out of order a little bit intentionally, and that is because this weekend is our ladies' annual breathe retreat. A lot of our ladies are there right now. My wife's there right now. I can see it in the eyes of a lot of the dads. You're wondering when the wife's going to be back, right? I see you. You're seen here. Which means we're missing hundreds of our women, which means we're missing thousands of our men. That's the way the math tends to work. And I just couldn't bear the thought that after this long walk through Revelation, so many people would miss the very best part of the book. And so last week, we jumped ahead to Revelation 21, kind of to the end of the story. And we saw how, according to Revelation, according to the Bible, the end of the world is not going to be the end of the world, but rather it's going to be what? The fulfillment, consummation, and celebration of everything the world was always intended to be. And so now this week, we're going to circle back to what we skipped last week, Revelation 17 through 18, and we're going to look at one final scene of seeming doom and gloom that is actually good news of great joy for all people. So this week, we're going to talk about Babylon and why, according to Revelation, Babylon has to die. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. It'll be up here on the screen as well. We're going to read Revelation 17, all of it, and then into about half of Revelation 18. All right, so be up here on the screen for you. This is very weird, so just prepare yourselves. We'll all experience the weirdness together. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Now, when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. Now, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but here we are. And it's going to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was not and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains or hills on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was not and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. Now the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with a beast for one hour. They have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now these will wage war against the Lamb, 
And the lamb will overcome them because of course he will because he's the Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues and the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and they will make her desolate and naked and they will eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Very disgusting. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. And the woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, eight more verses here. End of uh, chapter 18 now. Now, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven and having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons in a prison of every unclean spirit, uh, in a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. I don't know how the birds get wrapped into this. Um, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So pay her back even as she has paid, and give back uh, to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, you mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I'm not a widow, and I will never see mourning. Last verse. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. All right, Revelation 17 through 18, 8. All right, so as we have mentioned a few times, Revelation 6 through 20, it's kind of one unit there in Revelation. It is a very complicated part of the book, and even the brightest biblical interpreters can get lost here because it is very easy to lose the plot because there is a lot going on here. And the plot of Revelation 6 through 20, okay, we've said this a few times, but just as a reminder, it is not God going, hey, here's a, here's a mathematically meticulous timeline of the end of history that I want you to decode and figure out where you are on it. No, 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 no. Rather, Revelation 6 through 20 is God saying, hey, here's a picture, a proclamation of Jesus' total comprehensive victory over sin, suffering, and death that I want you to absorb. There's nothing to decode in Revelation, right? It is a revelation. It's something I want you to absorb. And so it's this smattering of images and stories that tell us the story of Jesus's total comprehensive victory, a victory that in some sense was accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that in another sense is still waiting to be fully accomplished in the second coming, the marriage of heaven and earth that we read about last week in Revelation 21. And so that story, right, this story of Jesus conquering sin, suffering, and death, it's told in terms of the war of the Lamb against the kings of the earth. Remember that one? That's Revelation 6 through 11. And then it's told in terms of Satan, the giant red dragon, waging this war against Jesus and the saints in Revelation 12 through 16. And then here in Revelation 17 and 18, we are introduced to a new evil character in our story. Character who's like part person, part place, and then part this spirit that is at work in the world. And this new character's name is Babylon. And so who or what exactly is Babylon? And as you probably intuit, there are a number of different ways 
that we have to answer this question. First off, the most basic answer is that Babylon is, uh, well, it's, it's Babylon. One of the most powerful empires in the ancient world, the capital city of that empire. Alongside Egypt, no other person, place, or thing had a larger negative role in Israel's theological and historical imagination than Babylon. Babylon is mentioned over 280 times in the Old Testament. Just all the time. You won't be able to not see it now that you realize it said so much. Uh, and of course, Babylon was the empire that crushed Israel in 537 and then took many, uh, 537 and 538, and took many um, Israelite captives back to Babylon in this event known as the Babylonian exile. It's one of the most formative events of the Old Testament. That and the Exodus are the two most foundational events in the Old Testament. So that's Babylon. But then over time, Babylon gradually came to symbolize more than just the literal Babylon. And it came to describe and name this deeply sinister perversion of creation, wherein good things become bad things and maybe even evil things because we elevate them beyond their proper place. So, So Babylon is what happens when something good becomes something evil because it was treated like something ultimate okay babylon is what happens when something good becomes something evil because it was treated like something ultimate this is the big idea we're going to spend some time on this one so for example you'll notice that in revelation 17 through 18 what we just read babylon is described as what as this lurid vain garish prostitute the whore of Babylon. Isn't that fun to say in church? You can say it with me. One, two, three. The whore of Babylon. Oh, my goodness. Now, we mentioned last week that in Isaiah's vision of God's new world in uh, Isaiah 25, he gives us this picture of this amazing cosmic party that God's going to throw for all creation. And at this amazing cosmic party, there will be served the most amazing wine that has ever existed. That's what Isaiah says. Wine that has been aged for eternity. Can you imagine how good that's going to be? All of which means wine is a good thing. Isaiah said it's going to be in heaven. Can I get an amen? It's a good thing. It is a good thing. It's a good thing. A good gift from a good and gracious God that makes us feel good. If you've had it, you know. It makes you feel good. It's a good thing. But when you treat it like an ultimate thing, when your life begins to revolve around acquiring it and the way it makes you feel, well, then it becomes something evil. A lot of you have seen it. Many of you have experienced it. You are experiencing it right now. Similarly, here in Revelation 17 and 18, um, remember last week we talked about how the new Jerusalem is going to be constructed using what? You remember the description? It's like gold and pearl, margarites, right? And precious stones because heaven is going to be filled with earth and those things are good. They are good and beautiful gifts from a good and beautiful God. Those are good things. But when we treat them like something ultimate, Right? When we start trying to acquire them in order to do what? Well, in order to uh, stoke our greed or to elicit the envy or lust of others or to signal our status and superiority, well, then they become something evil. Last of all, finally, just a few weeks ago, we did a conference here at Vista uh, about sex. It's called The Talk. It was great. About how sex is a good gift from a good and gracious God. Right, think about it. God could have made us procreate in any way. Could have been a high five, right? I'm very thankful it, it wasn't that. 
Could have been anything. And God chose this, right? Sex is a good gift from a good God. It's not something that Satan snuck into the garden while God was creating the dinosaurs. You know, it's not like God's making a steak of stores over there. He turns around and goes, oh my, Adam, what are you doing? Jesus, don't look, son. You are not ready for this. Adam, stop it. No, God created it. It's a good gift. And yet, when it becomes something ultimate, when our lives begin to revolve around acquiring it without reverence, respect, and responsibility. Right? And that's the essence of what pornography is. It is sex without reverence, respect, and responsibility. Well, then it becomes something evil. And this theme of something good becoming something evil because it was treated like something ultimate comes up again and again in this description of Babylon that we get in Revelation 17 and 18. Instead of a bunch of spiritual mumbo-jumbo, everything is said in starkly economic and earthly terms. Like the kings of the earth, they mourn Babylon's fall. Why? Well, because she's made them filthy rich. That's why. And now with her gone, there will be no market for their gold and their silver and their pearls and their slaves and their cattle. Joseph Mangina probably puts it best in his commentary of Revelation when he says, Babylon names the world in the negative New Testament sense, right? So when you see that word world in the New Testament, you can tell there's some bad vibes going on. Right? That's, that's Babylon. That's what the New Testament writers are trying to name, Babylon. And we have to discuss now this very interesting and very, very important tension that you've probably felt throughout your life, and so we'll just name it. This is the way I would put it. Right, here's the tension. The world is awesome, and then the world is terrible, right? The world is awesome. The world is terrible. Let's start with the good news, y'all. The world is awesome. You know, God creates the world, and he is so smitten with his handiwork that I like to think he moonwalks across the universe just singing about how good it all is, right? He's like, oh my God, you see this star that I made up here? Oh my goodness, man, look at this oak tree I'm gonna have here in Central Texas. You know what this is? This is where George Strait's gonna be born right here, boys. This is where it's gonna happen. Oh, the world is awesome. Every year there's this contest. Uh, it's some uh, photography magazine that puts it on where they try to see who captured the funniest nature photograph of the year. And I just love looking at it every year because it reminds me how awesome creation is. Here are my three favorite ones from this year. Okay, here's the first one. This little, little joke between pinnipeds, I suppose. Second one, this is great. This, my son got carried out of the UT football game like this just last night. Spilt a 60-ounce beer on somebody. And this is the best one, of course. Obviously, I, man, hey, look, I... I'm sorry for the primate nudity, but this photo had to be shared. And many of us have been there. Bet you didn't thought you'd see monkey genitalia at church today. Well, so God's creation is awesome. It is. Not up for debate. It's awesome. But then one of the most awesome things about God's awesome creation is that God invites us to make more awesome things out of the awesome things that God made. Right, to take what God made and make more with it. And the technical term for this is, of course, culture. Right? Culture is what we make out of the world that God made. i say that again. Culture is what we make out of the world that God has made. And I know it's not polite to brag, but y'all, we have made some pretty amazing things. You ever thought about things we've made? As many of you are aware, we've shot this little James Webb telescope out into the heavens not too long ago. And this little telescope is so ingeniously constructed that it allows us to see back in time about 13 billion years. Now, for example, here's one of the first pictures that it took. Give you a little context for this picture. This picture is a little speck 
of the heavens that would be about the size of a grain of sand if you held it up at arm's length, okay? So you got your little grain of sand at arm's length, you hold it up, and you zoom in, and you zoom in, and you zoom in, and zoom in, zoom in, zoom in, and this is what was there 4.6 billion years ago. Now, how amazing is it that we made something that allows us to see things God made four and a half billion years ago? And it's an incredible invention. But of course, we dare not forget the single most important human invention, coffee. Anybody else? I mean, amen. I'm just here to glorify God and drink coffee. That's why I exist. And so the world that God has made is awesome. And then so many things that we made out of the world that God made are also awesome. But then sometimes, a lot of the time, the things that we make are not so awesome. Sometimes the things we make are, they're evil. And of course, the worst kind of evil is evil that kind of looks good, right? And that, that is Babylon, evil that kind of looks good. It's when we get caught up in a way of life that makes worldly things ultimate. It's when good things become evil things because we treated them like ultimate things. So for example, for many of us, Babylon looks like what theologian Peter Lightheart calls Americanism, Americanism. And I want you to really listen in here because I know this can be really touchy and I want you to hear what I'm actually saying, okay? Now he is careful to distinguish Americanism from patriotism. They're two very different things because whereas patriotism is just having a healthy care and pride for your home, right? For your piece of the earth, which is a wonderful thing. What are you gonna do, hate your little piece of the earth? Well, that doesn't do anybody any good. Patriotism's a wonderful thing, right? Properly understood. Americanism is this belief that God favors America over every other country, which is, of course, not biblical, right? America's not in the Bible, but it's not only not biblical, it is unbiblical. God doesn't favor anybody because God favors everybody, right? Scripture is very clear that God does not show any partiality. And then furthermore, Americanism mistakenly believes that because God favors America over every other country, God is you know, committed to achieving America's worldly success on the world stage in worldly terms, and that we thus by implication should pledge our allegiance to achieving America's worldly success on the worldly stage in worldly terms. Now we must be very careful to distinguish this from Texasism, which is a belief in Texas superiority, which is very biblical and absolutely something that we encourage here. <laughs> At the Vista. Yeah, I mean, duh. I, I didn't think it needed to be said, but just in case it did. Um, and do you, see, do you see how clever this is of Satan? Can you see how clever this is? Right, because if Satan were to show up at your front door, like one of those really annoying salesmen on hoverboards, you know what I'm talking about? They're always 23 years old, perfectly groomed beards, always knocked on your kid's nap time every single time, and you want to beat them and run them over with that hoverboard a few times? That guy. He showed up like that with his horns and his pitchfork showing. He said, hey, would you like to be on my team? None of us would do it. Right? None of us would do it. We know how that story ends. So here's what Satan does instead. He takes a good thing, like patriotism, having a proper care and pride for your little piece of the earth. And he sees if he can tempt you into turning that good thing into an ultimate thing. Right? So he sees if he can move you from, hey, I care about America, and I'm proud to be an American, which is a good thing. But he's not going to let you leave it there. He wants to move you to what? Oh, I, I think God favors America over every country on earth. Now, we've got a little bit of a problem. 
And then he sees if he can move you from there to, I, I think God has, has pledged his allegiance to America's worldly success on the world stage, and that's God's mission in life, and so that should be my mission in life. And all of a sudden, we have come a very long way, and we are in a lot of trouble. And we really don't need to pick on America here. I know that's become fashionable or Americanism because this is a very ancient struggle, y'all. In Revelation 17, it is very clear that the primary reference to Babylon is what? It's who? It's the Roman Empire, okay? Uh, when John says in Revelation 17, verse 9, that this lady, the whore of Babylon, the seven heads are seven mountains or hills upon which the woman sits. This is a very explicit reference to Rome, which is the city on the seven hills. If you've ever been to Rome, you know it's the city on the seven hills. And so here's John speaking to these first century Christians who inhabited the Roman Empire and were under constant pressure to be good Roman citizens who pledged their allegiance to Rome and acted like Rome's prosperity was an ultimate value. He says to them, hey, listen, it is good for you to have care and pride for your little piece of the world. That's a good thing. But you can't pledge your allegiance to Caesar. You can't do that. Because you've already pledged your complete allegiance to King Jesus. And you can't pursue the interest of Rome at all cost. Because you've been called, commanded to pursue the interest of the kingdom of God at all costs. And you get it, and this is why Christianity has always had a very complicated relationship with empires, with any strong nation or culture, because it's just kind of in the nature of empires to make themselves and their interest ultimate. And so Christians, we, we have a moral and theological obligation to be a pain in the butt to empires, because we refuse to let them treat themselves and their interests as ultimate. Yes, but. It's the only word that will do. And so that is one possible and very prevalent manifestation of Babylon. Uh, but man, Satan, Satan tempts us with Babylon in many, many different ways. For many of us, Babylon looks like what author Will Storr calls the status game. He wrote a very good book about this by the uh, name, and the basic premise of the book is so indisputably accurate and exposing that it embarrasses you a little bit to hear it said out loud. And so here's the premise, and be prepared to probably be a little bit embarrassed. Almost everything you say, everything you think, and everything you do is motivated at the end of the day by your desire to gain more status. So, you know that really frustrating situation at work with that supervisor, that coworker, that employee that you feel like you're being so, so fair and equitable about and you just know what the solution is? Isn't it weird how the solution always seems to involve a status increase for you? Or when the marriage is all knotted up in conflict, I hear it happens, you know? Isn't it weird how the remedy always seems to involve a higher dose of status for you? It always involves, it's weird, it always involves them seeing that you were the more righteous one, the more communicative one, the more giving one, the harder working one. Or when you're just discontent with life, you know, you're feeling kind of angsty and unfulfilled looking around at all those people who have it better. Isn't it weird how the, uh, you know, the fulfillment you desire always seems to come in the form of more status for you, the nicer house, the nicer car, the nicer clothes, the nicer body, the nicer job title, and most importantly, the admiration 
emotion that you think those things will get you. And to be clear, wanting to belong and contribute is a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, right, when your desire to be desired, and you know what I'm talking about, and envied and important and known becomes the de facto center of gravity for your life, and it is for a lot of us. Man, you can call it whatever you want, but you're playing the status game, and you are living in Babylon. And of course, we could do this all day because the list of good things that become evil things because they were treated like ultimate things goes on and on and on and on because it's good for you to want to work hard to provide for your family. That's a wonderful thing. But it stopped being about that a long time ago for a lot of you, a long time ago. And you are addicted to your career and to your work because it has become something ultimate for you. And it's good, like we've already said, it's good to have a healthy sexual desire, right? That's a good thing. But man, it stopped being about that a long time ago for a lot of you. And you are addicted to fulfilling, expressing whatever your sexuality because it's become something ultimate for you. And it's a good thing to want to teach your kid the discipline to be good at a sport. Well, that's good. That discipline translates later in life. That's a good thing. But it stopped being about that a long time ago for a lot of you. And you are addicted to achieving your kid's worldly success on the world stage in worldly terms because it has become something ultimate for you. And so that is Babylon. In many of her forms, and she takes many, 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 many others. And what Revelation 17 through 18 tells us, proclaims, is that she will fall. And that God is going to put an end to her deception and her reign. And then in light of that proclamation of what God will do, we have this implication stated very plainly in uh, chapter 18, verse 4, of what we should do in response. Okay, here's what John says. Now I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. So how exactly do we, do we come out of Babylon? You know, must we, must we retreat fully from the world? Do we have to go full Amish? No technology, no, no makeup, no HBO, but how do we watch House of the Dragon? You know, what do we do? We have to retreat fully from the world. Now, uh, many of you probably know that the church, not the Vista, but like the church through space and time, capital C, has had a very long-standing debate about this, about how to best be in the world and not of the world, however you want to say it. And one of the problems with the retreat from the world option is that there's just really nowhere to go. There's really nowhere to retreat to because, well, you are the world. And all those terrible things that are in the world, all those ucky things, the vanity, the greed, the lust, the pride, the arrogance, all those gross, yucky things, well, they're in you too, aren't they? Right? You are inescapably in the world. And the world is inescapably in you. And so there's just nowhere that you could go to retreat from it. All that to say, I'm not saying that the retreat from the world option is a bad option. I'm saying it's not an option. Period. You are the world. The world is in you. I've been to a monastery. It's the same nonsense there, man. Just different variations of the same stuff, the same struggles. You cannot get away from the world. And so rather than retreating from the world, coming out of Babylon means learning how to better be in the world 
as God intended it. All right, I'll say that again. Coming out of Babylon, it is not about retreating from the world, but about learning how to better be in the world as God intended it because we don't need to retreat from good food, good wine, good sex, good sports, good politics because those are good gifts from a good and gracious God. We're like running away from it. God's like, hey, this is for you, man. Where are you going? Who else is going to eat this? You know, why are you running away? But we must learn how to treat those good things like good things and not ultimate things. We got to learn how all those good gifts are ultimately means to another end. They are all a means to loving God and loving each other. They're not ultimate. And so Babylon, she's got to die. Not because God hates the world. No, 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 no. But because God loves the world. And God hates the perversion of the world that Babylon represents. And so if Babylon has to die, and there are ways in which all of us are deeply wrapped up in Babylon in her ways, and we are, then that means that there are some very strong attachments in all of us that are going to have to be broken. Attachments to status, to stuff, to sex, to superiority. I mean, you name it, man. And coming out of Babylon, when all is said and done, it means learning how to live a life where only God is ultimate. Everything else is relative. And that is the difficult but joyful work of a lifetime. And that is a work that God would love to help you work out. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as always, we do not deserve to be here. We are here because of your grace and your mercy. And we pause and we remember that today. Uh, God, we, we confess that we are wrapped up in Babylon and her ways. And it's not because we're just awful people and we're trying to be awful people. No, it's just a very understandable temptation for us to turn good things into evil things because we accidentally treat them like ultimate things. God, it could be our love for a family. It could be our love for country. It could be our love for hard work. Like you name it, Satan finds a way to pervert it and make it ultimate. And so we come before you and we just confess that, that we're all wrapped up in her and her ways and that by your good grace, that this is not something we need to be ashamed of, but something we humbly confess so that you might help us come out of Babylon to enjoy the good gifts of creation as good not ultimate gifts, because God, you alone are ultimate. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.